Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin the program this Wednesday with someone who was constructive when others weren't. Bullish when many were still bearish. Her name, Lisa Shallot of Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. Lisa Shallot, fantastic to catch up with you. And I will say out front, you have been right over the last couple of months. But over the last couple of weeks, that cyclical rotation has started to fade. There is a defensive bias creeping back into this market. What's the message for clients this morning, Lisa? Uh, yeah, look, I think that, that as you um, articulated, I think that the concerns over the you know recent spike in cases um, is something that investors are definitely grappling with. And to your point, we have seen uh, you know a defensive rotation, albeit on the one hand, uh, you know people sustained by the fuel of the Fed, uh, but on the other hand, you know buying things like gold, like utilities. Uh, like staples, you know, leading this market. So, um, you know, we have, uh, you know, articulated that we thought that period, um, you know, really from June through the end of the year was going to be uh, a very volatile and trade range bound, uh, a range bound market. And, you know, we're, we're sticking with that. Um, we still think there's opportunities to buy those cyclicals for what ultimately happens in 2021, 2022. Uh, but we understand that we're in a very, very choppy critical period here, uh, and we're not surprised by this defensive rotation, and, and certainly uh, it, it is validated by that news flow that Tom talked about. The the the, the pickup um, in, in the virus numbers are staggering in the last week. Lisa, compared to where we were a couple of weeks ago, you sound relatively more cautious. I hope that's a fair characterization of where you stand. And I just wonder what's at the epicenter of that turn for you? Um, yeah, no, it's, it's as I said, um, I think we are a little bit more cautious. Look, we're still very uh, strongly in that range that we've talked about between 2,900 and 3,200. Uh, but as we look at, um, you know, these, the spike in the COVID-19 cases, um, while we don't think that there's appetite, either human will uh, or political will to really go back to the, the style of all-out lockdowns that we saw in March and April. Um, these are numbers that are going to cause people, uh, you know, local uh, town cities uh, concern and and stress. And and again, to Tom's point, um, if you start hitting uh, limits in certain cities and municipalities on their hospital capacity, they will have no choice. Uh, but to, uh, once again, restrict economic activity. Uh, and I think that, that uh, you know, that's kind of what you're seeing in the numbers. People get the, the joke, you can't fight the Fed, but they also worry that the only things that are going to work, um, you know, in an environment where the recovery is very lumpy and impeded by the virus, uh, maybe, you know, with, with those very defensive uh, names. Uh, Lisa Shelley, you, good morning. You've always been research-based, of course, with the acclaim of Sanford Bernstein and the wonderful black books and all that. You've always led with research first. What are you learning from the Morgan Stanley sell-side research team about this nation and its corporations? What is the spirit they're hearing, they're feeling going into the summer, into the mystery of the fall months? 
Yeah, I think one of the the um, you know most interesting things that we're debating is the extent to which um, companies um, are going to resume their capital spending. Uh, and so one of the reasons that we as a house, I think, have been somewhat more bullish uh, than many and, and why, you know, our global economist and Chet and I, uh, um, you know, have stuck to this more bullish V-shaped recovery forecast is because we are seeing uh, a pickup in uh, capital spending intentions. And that um, was something that I think uh, earlier in the year was much more hotly debated. Now, a lot of that capital spending does, um, you know, seem to be focused on technology and the cloud and, you know, digital presence. Um, but, um, you know, that's, that's really, I think, um, you know, where, where we still remain uh, very bullish and constructive. Um, that that capital spending, um, you know, can, can help sustain this recovery. Lisa, we're going to be very lucky to have Chetnaya with us tomorrow, your colleague. Uh, a question coming up from a listener, Cliff Noreen at Mass Mutual, and this really goes to the angst of a lot of investors out there. Has the easy money been made? Can we just expect lower returns going forward? Well, that's certainly um, our our view. Um, I mean, if, if you just look at the last uh, decade, <laughs> Um, and we talk about this all the time. Uh, you know, over the last 11 years, the S&P 500, you know, has compounded at close to 15% per year, which is two times normal. Uh, the corporate credit returns have compounded at 9%. That's about three times normal. Um, and so if you look at this on any of, you know, set normalized uh, metrics, either normalized earnings or normalized interest rates, you know, this is a very expensive market. So in the, in the, the you know, eyes of a, of a, you know, Robert Schiff-type framework, um, you know, we're looking at returns over the next, you know, three to five years that are going to be a lot more like 4 to 5%, not 7 or 8% that a lot of, of clients, you know, have historically expected. So, uh, you know, certainly the Fed is throwing unbelievable amounts of ammunition at this, the the federal government is, is doing its part on fiscal, uh, but it's really hard to see, um, you know, how financial assets, uh, you know, appreciate materially without us really getting into dangerous bubble territory. Lisa Shallow to Morgan Stanley. Lisa, always appreciate your insight and perspective, and we thank you for your time this morning. Our best to you and the whole of the team over at Morgan Stanley. Right now, a really wonderful conversation on how we're framing our expectations forward. Michelle Meyer came to the attention of all of Global Wall Street with her financial modeling learned at Boston University. She did brilliant work for Bank of America on real estate, on the thinking of the underpinnings of the economy. She joins us now with Bank of America. Michelle, do the models work right now? Can you use conventional Michelle Meyer economics to look <laughs> forward or do you have to make it up as you go? Um, so, so I think what we've learned is that right now it's really important to do a bottoms up exercise, a bottoms up modeling, right? Because the shock is so sector specific and it's hitting the economy in many different ways. So think about it for jobs, for example, probably the best way to forecast the path forward for the labor market and the unemployment rate is to think carefully about each major sector. How is how are retail jobs going to recover versus construction versus autos versus leisure and hospitality? <clears throat> and from that, you can then kind of add up and, and think about the big picture. But it's really important 
to look at the economy right. on a sector to sector basis right now. I, I agree with that. In the partition of goods and services, we've seen goods yep. disinflation and outright deflation at times. Do you suggest we will see service sector disinflation? Look, this is a service sector shock. Um, and and you're right. Typically, it's good that swings around a lot more. It's goods that tend to be the most vulnerable in a recession. But consider the consumer basket that we've seen in the past um, few months since COVID hit. People have been spending on durable goods. They've been spending on household appliances. They've been spending on autos. They've been spending on housing. And they haven't been spending on services. So the big demand destruction has been much more on services. Now, part of that comes back. It already is coming back upon reopening, but not fully. So the bigger price adjustments happen to services. I don't think you'll see outright deflation for broad services because the lodging component, the rental component in there is so broad. But we're going to flirt with that. Um, and certainly many categories will be uh, disinflationary and, and, and some will be in deflation territory. Michelle, I'm going to steal from your research the three phases to all of this, the shutdown, yeah. <laughs> the bounce, the recovery. You've talked about that bounce off the trampoline followed by a long climb up a rope. What are you yeah. learning from the bounce in the last month? So, you know, I think it's been stronger than maybe we would have anticipated. And part of that because the reopening was also earlier. So it's it's happened earlier. It's it's been strong. Consumer confidence is also um, picked up pretty meaningfully. So people also feel better about the world. There's clearly a desire to re-engage that said, we're now starting to see very early evidence that things are leveling off, whether you look at it in terms of some of the high frequency data around consumer spending or small business openings from a variety of alternative data sources as well. Things are starting to kind of peak out, particularly in the states that are further along in the reopening process. So that tells us that next phase, and thank you for referencing those three phases, um, that next phase, the, the, the true healing and the recovery phase, um, we're starting to approach that. And, and that that's going to be a much more challenging one, in my view. And Michelle, another challenging aspect here is the road ahead for housing. So far, we've seen amazing resilience. And I know this is one of yeah. your expertises dating back to 2005, 2006. And I'm wondering yeah. how long this can last if we don't see a further resurgence, especially since these are really being driven by mortgage rates at all time lows. Yeah, you know, I think for housing, clearly the bounce has been incredible. Mortgage purchase applications and 11-year high, new construction in particular, benefiting the most because of the ability and the ease of, of searching for new construction versus existing. Um, so mortgage rates, I think, is one factor. I think pandemic-related relocations is another factor, particularly out of urban areas. We've seen a lot of survey evidence to that effect. Um, and then the demographics in general have been also favorable for, for housing. And this factor continues. So no, we won't expect this rate of growth to persist for housing. This is this is a this is a sharp move up, um, given the situation. Um, but the fundamentals are still pretty um, supportive. And if we could assume, and I think rightfully so, that interest rates are going to remain very low for the medium term, housing should continue to be underpinned. Michelle, when you talk about the migration out of urban areas, is it going to leave zombie lands in some of the big metropolitan areas where there's an incredible amount of commercial real estate that won't necessarily get filled up, as well as residential that's been built up over the past few years? So I think there will be some real um, consequences, of course, from these um, considerable shifts in population and where people want to live, where people want to work. Um, 
But remember that they're short-term adjustments. In the end, urban centers are still vibrant. It's still where, you know, the heart of businesses tend to lie. And, and, and you know, these cities, particularly if you think New York City, they've been through these shocks over the years and they do bounce back. But I do think in the short term, we will be seeing a, a pretty meaningful adjustment. And if you think about even just the real estate market in in, in, in some of the cities versus the, the suburbs, you're already starting to see some of that price convergence even before COVID hit. So the COVID shock just amplifies what was already underway um, in terms of the migration paths. Michelle, there's a real worry that the infection increase of the last several weeks in several states, including Texas, is going to constrain the reopening process and start to hit the data. My worry, just looking at this from an economics perspective, is that the sequential improvement is bound to continue because places like New York are just starting to reopen. Those forces will be really powerful. So the aggregate numbers over the next couple of months might still look strong. Do you think that could mask some fragility underneath and we might miss what is happening in places like Texas, California, Florida, and elsewhere. So you're absolutely right in that, you know, when you think about the aggregate, you have the states that are further along in reopening, where the viruses are rising, things might be starting to slow there because just the length of time post reopening, and now they have the virus concerns. But that's gonna be offset by New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, um, moving into the reopening process, further along in the reopening process. So that's why it's absolutely critical to look at high frequency data on a state basis. So we do a lot of work where we're trying to um, pick out um, the, the states, you know, kind of bucket the states into the degree of reopening and track daily, weekly data in terms of understanding what economic activity is doing. And I think the most important indicator will be if the states that are further along in reopening that now have viruses on the rise, as you said, Texas, Florida, Arizona, but Arizona and South Carolina in that bucket, if you start to see behavior switch, even before there's government policies that that demand that, right, just from personal preferences, mm-hmm. I think that will be a very important sign. What should we look for in the high-frequency data tomorrow morning at 8.30, the claims statistics? So we love claims. Claims are a great piece of information, but they are flawed, and we've learned that. Um, they're flawed in part because there's backlog issues, presumably, in terms of how to process these 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 uh, indicators. Um, there's all different changes to the claims programs in terms of eligibility and criteria for receiving claims. So I think you need to take them with a grain of salt when you're translating those claims numbers into actual hiring and, and more important, firing really is what you're capturing with it. That said, the stickiness that we've seen from claims has been uh, a a sign of of, of reason to be concerned because it tells you that there's still some firing going on, even when we know there's hiring from reopening. So for claims tomorrow, we do think we're going to see some modest move down in initial jobless claims remaining above a million. And continuing jobless claims, which is probably really one of the more critical indicators when you're trying to, to map this to an unemployment rate, um, you know, I would imagine it comes down a bit, but I don't think we should expect these dramatic falls right now uh, in claims. Certainly the data hasn't shown that. Michelle Ma of Bank of America. Michelle, always enjoy hearing from you and the whole of the team. My best to you and yours. Michelle Ma there of B of A. The yield differentials and, of course, the flow differentials, and that's something Shahab Jalanus knows well at Credit Suisse, originally off their Singapore desk and out of the London School of Economics grind. Shahab, good morning to you. What is the Credit Suisse call on the U.S. dollar? Morning. Uh, We are looking for a weaker dollar uh, linked to to some of the points you've already made. Firstly, we do have uh, a situation where the Fed is still buying, uh, in effect, around $80 
dollars a month of treasuries, uh, and the balance sheet expansion is, conclu- uh, is, is continuing with, with maybe slightly slower than the peak levels that we saw, but still by any historical standard uh, at, at a fast pace. You also have still talk of yield curve control. Uh, our rate strategies, for example, thinks the market is still pricing in around a 40% chance of yield curve control being introduced in the U.S. within the next three months. Um, some feel that the Fed has already decided to do that, well, and it's just <clears> a question of working out implementation. So these factors, together with very low nominal rates, we talked about real rates, but nominal rates are also very low, obviously, and, and so yield differentials, even right. in nominal terms, and, and do not preclude being short dollars these days, unlike the last few years. And, and, and folks, for those of you on our simulcast, this is really important how we fold in our conversation of yesterday with James Bullard over to the foreign exchange realities of Shahab Jalanus. On yield curve control, Shahab, do you just assume that means lower and longer at the zero bound? And as John Farrow mentions, the interest rate market must adapt to that, and that's expressed in your world of foreign exchange. I think that's right. I think in our world of foreign exchange, you know, clearly real yields do matter in the long run, but in the very short term, uh, nominal rates matter too. That's that's basically the the real cost, well, the cost of carry that you pay um, for being long or short a currency. And at this point in time, unlike recent years, the dollar in nominal terms does not offer any significant yield pickup, and and yield control would ensure that that would be the case going forward uh, for a long time as well. Uh, So all of a sudden, currencies like the euro or the yen or the Swiss franc that have some positive characteristics, let's say from a fiscal perspective relative to the US or from a current account perspective, they don't look so bad all of a sudden because now they don't have uh, a yield, a negative yield differential relative to the US dollar. So owning them becomes much more attractive. And I think that's that's the state of play that we're, we're in right now. Shahab, what does yield curve control mean to you? When you say you expect to see it, what are you expecting to see? Well, we believe if it's going to be introduced, it's more likely to be um, a bit like the Australian case, for example, in the three to five, the three-year tenor, or maybe up to the five-year tenor, um, where the Fed would effectively signal to the market that it's not going to let yields move above a certain level, a certain very low level, uh, up to that point in time. Now, in other countries, for example, in Japan, you have yield curve control all the way out to 10 years. Now, you probably don't need to move into that space quite quite yet. We'll see what, what happens um, with inflation expectations. But given that inflation expectations are going up already in the U.S., presumably you don't need to go that far up the curve. But, but even in the three-year tenor, for example, it's still a major innovation uh, for the U.S. to move to yield curve control. Um, and it's a, it's a new challenge for the dollar. And the problem here, of course, for the dollar as well is nobody really considers it to be a cheap currency. If anything, most valuation models would probably have it at the, at the expensive end um, of, of any long-term valuation level, particularly against the likes of the yen and the euro. So it makes the trade easier to be short dollars when you know that it's not even seen as cheap by anybody. Well, Sharp, looking at where the treasuries are right now, out to the belly of the curb, we're already there for the Fed, aren't we? We're at 33 basis points on a five-year, just outside of the range on a Fed funds rate. And I'm just trying to work out what difference yield curve control is actually going to make. Two's at 20 basis points. How much lower can they go? Well, that's, that's true. And as, as I said, I think the market is already 
a long way towards pricing in yield curve control being introduced just as, as recently, as, sorry, as soon as the next three months. So um, it's definitely something that, that's in the consciousness of the market already. But the fact is, when you look at the dollar from a longer-term perspective, uh, it's not simply the surprise element of more yield curve control and more aggressive yield curve control that could take it lower. It's the, especially adding this to an already difficult picture for the dollar. For example, when you look at it from the perspective of valuation, as I mentioned, it wasn't cheap. When you look at it in terms of things like the U.S.'s likely fiscal trajectory or current account trajectory, those aren't looking good. Um, then you look at political risk, for example, the possibility of uh, unrest around the election in November, the presidential election, um, but also congressional elections. All of these, it's, it's the whole picture put together that makes the dollar look difficult right now. And the other thing, of course, to note is that in the rest of the world, you actually have some positive developments going on, um, particularly in the case of the euro, where um, finally you have a move being made that, that seems tangible towards a, a form of uh, fiscal risk mutualization. Um, and that's in the shape of the European Recovery Fund. We'll find out more about this next month when EU leaders meet to, to discuss it properly. But if that comes through, then you do have a major, um, maybe a multi-year innovation um, that's, that's going to be euro-positive exactly at the time as the dollar is facing these problems. And, and it's these kinds of divergences that tend to lead to FX trends. And if these come through together, that's the kind of thing that would make, for example, euro-dollar look a likely candidate to go back up above, above 120 within this year. Wow, that's a big call. I'm wondering, that's your highest conviction call is that the euro will strengthen versus the dollar this year. What about emerging market currencies? Is this just a broad risk-on trend for the rest of the world versus the U.S.? So I think, generally speaking, when the euro is going up, uh, it tends to act as a tailwind for, for emerging markets as well relative to the U.S. dollar. Um, of course, one issue now with emerging markets is that interest rates have come down a lot in those countries as well. So the risk premium, uh, what you get paid for that is much less than it used to be. So that's, that's something to consider. Uh, but secondly, there are regional differences to, to consider. So for example, in Latin America right now, there are countries like Chile and Brazil that have been heavily affected by, by the pandemic and continue to be so we probably would shy away uh, of buying those currencies at this point in time. Um, in fact, we like being short the Chilean peso and the Brazilian real for choice. Uh, but there's other currencies in the emerging market space where some of these risks are slightly less um, immediate and maybe the fiscal positions coming into the crisis were more robust. Um, I'm thinking of things like the Korean won, the Indonesian rupiah, or the Russian ruble. So those types of currencies do still look to us uh, like they could be winners in a world where the dollar is falling uh, against the euro. Shahab, always great to get your thoughts. Send our best to the team at Credit Suisse. Shahab Jalanous there on this FX market, looking for euro dollar to get out to 120 before year end. Right now, Henrietta Trey's with us with Veda Partners as we look to Washington and policy. Just a magnificent career with actual legislative work on the Hill and, of course, with Marty Zweig years ago. Uh, Henrietta, wonderful to have you with us. I've got a dumb question, but an obvious question. How do the people you follow, how do they change in the summer before a big election? What's the behavior that adapts and changes when the heat is on? 
Well, Tom, you never ask a dumb question. Thank you so much. Um, I, I feel like um, our clients have been with us for so long that they start to ask the really good questions early. So they're already skipping ahead past the election on to, you know, what does tax policy look like under a Biden administration? What can we expect from further U.S.-EU tensions? Uh, where are we on China? Uh, they are already into, you know, November 4th. Wait a minute. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. Are they assuming the election of the vice president? Um, I think that's the base case for a lot of folks. I think that's what the math tells you. Um, That's certainly what we see from everything uh, since the 2016 elections, the various midterms, specifically proven by Super Tuesday. We look a lot at the generic polling data, which suggests that Democrats have a lead just in sheer voter turnout of plus 10. Um, That suggests a wave that is on par with 2008. And that's literally just the math. So um, I I think that for investors and our clients who've been through so many elections now and follow the midterms very closely, understand that the House and Senate are sometimes more important than who gets elected to the White House. That's where they're prioritizing. So we do a lot of conversations around what does reconciliation instructions look like? Where can the corporate tax rate go? Um, What are we looking at on infrastructure? What are the priorities with deficit and spending? Um, So they are very much preparing for that, uh, which I think is very appropriate. Henrietta, six months ago, when President Trump looked like he might be losing a little bit of ground to the Democratic candidate, stocks sold off. Now there is little move. Why? Um, That is interesting. I think there is some confusion around, obviously, coronavirus that gets in the way of that development. I would say that six months ago, we were still dealing with the potential for uh, Bernie Sanders versus Biden. So there was actually a huge relief when Biden won the Super Tuesday states and it became clear that he was going to be the Democratic nominee because a lot of investors had been very fearful of just the outside chance that Bernie Sanders could have been the nominee. So I think there's been a lot of flip-flopping back and forth there. Um, But a really nuanced view of what could happen under a Biden administration is frankly not all that much to the downside and a lot to the upside if you're looking for economic stimulus in the market. The question is really what's the scale and scope of any stimulus going to be? Is it going to be a $2 trillion infrastructure package or is it going to be, you know, a de minimis $500 billion bill? Um, We err on the side of $2 trillion. Um, We use the 2009 Biden as a pretty fantastic example. He was literally in the White House during a very similar economic environment and, um, he deficit spent and passed the ARRA at the time, which was a, a huge bill for 2009 numbers pales in comparison to what we're seeing this year. Um, and that's that's really our rubric for what we'd expect from Biden in 2021. Henrietta, it also speaks to the potential uh, stimulus that we may get ahead of the election. You wrote in a recent note that if it takes longer to get a stimulus package passed, it will likely big, be bigger. Can you please elaborate on that? Yeah, I actually was having a great conversation with a super smart guy um, focused on the auto industry. And we've been working with them just to understand, you know, hey, where are the stimulus bailouts going to come? We saw the airlines bailouts, the CARES Act. Are there going to be others? You know, there's been rumors of an oil bailout or um, questions about cruise lines and hotels, et cetera. The reality is that there's very um, it's unlikely that we're going to see bailouts for any specific sectors. Congress still gets gun shy around that uh, after the, you know, bailouts of the financial services space, essentially, in the Great Recession. So there's uh, aversion to sector specific bailouts. But 
right now, if you were looking at Republican Senate staff um, and Senate members, there are, I would say, at least 13 members who are very opposed to meaningful deficit spending in July. They are expecting robust June employment numbers. We're going to get a roll-off of the PPP and the eight weeks of employment requirement there, which will make July employment numbers shrink meaningfully is the expectation. So right now, the economic figures don't look so bad. When we get June numbers, people are expecting them on Capitol Hill to be pretty robust. Once we get July numbers in August that sets us up for the legislative debate period in September, things are going to look much worse. If things look much worse, then you can get more money doled out. It's obviously just two months before the election. You could get some concerted efforts from Mm -hmm. President Trump to say, hey, we really need more stimulus. And then they could loosen the purse strings a little bit. But for right now, they just want to hold on to all their cash with sort of a tight vest. Henrietta, fantastic to catch up with you. As always, a really important discussion. One will continue through the next few weeks and months as we count you down to November. Right now, without question, the most important interview we could do in this fair city of five boroughs, New York City, than trying to get our restaurants open for the society, the culture, and yes, the food that our restaurants bring. It's everything from McDonald's to a bistro to this and that. And Daniel Ballou is at the top of the heap. Not only the many different uh, restaurants that he has, including Danielle, but also his management of the people, the management of the kitchens in the front of the house as well. Daniel Ballou joins us this morning here on Bloomberg Surveillance. Daniel, what do you need right now you, from Mayor de Blasio? What do you need from Governor Cuomo? Uh, of course, uh, we got into phase two and I'm opening uh, our West Side restaurant, Bar Boulou and uh, Epicerie Boulou with a big terrace. And uh, of course, they have been flexible with giving the chance to restaurateurs to be able to put tables in the street and open their restaurant, but it's not the only solution. I think we need the citizens of New York to be very vigilant and very safe. We need to keep our staff very safe, of course. We need to keep our... But we need to also continue to support the economy better by bringing back more customers. We have done takeout, and takeout has been good with Daniel Bully Kitchen. We started... uh, home delivery and, uh, you know, we have even delivered to the Hamptons and right. all that. But I think from from the governor, of course, we are going to need a lot of support and we are asking uh, for the government to really be sensitive to our industry. Of course, we need to bring people back to work. Is this once and for all, Danielle, that we do what Europe does effortlessly, which is granted it's summer, that we need to move the restaurants outside, across the sidewalks, and indeed out into the streets? Do we have to change the rules of where the walls are of restaurants so you can break even? And, and I think, uh, but the summer in New York can be so hot, then it can be very, very uncomfortable as well to be outside. And uh, we're looking also maybe at Danielle to be able to transform the restaurant in something more casual, more summery, more Mediterranean, and, and do a little pop-up for a couple of months and take people in a different sort of set of mind and set of place with a lot of safety measure. And But, uh, you know, we have to make sure first and foremost, and 
uh, the city of New York is safe to be able to reopen inside as well. And uh, we need we need serious guidance from the, the city and the state to do that. Chef, casual dining definitely has a place. Fine dining is dead. That, according to Danny Meyer of Union Square Hospitality, who said he's not going to open his finer dining restaurants until there is a vaccine. What's your view on that? I don't think uh, fine dining will be dead, but I think fine dining will be suffering. And uh, the one who can survive is the one who maybe has to do a good uh, negotiation with their landlord. The landlord has to be very supportive to that. But I believe that we, uh, you know, every uh, every fine craft will still exist and continue to exist. We have the fa- we have the ability to scale down. We have the ability to be able to approach customer with something more sampler, more uh, more uh, soulful, more cheaper. And I think we're going to try to work on all directions with that. I think it's not because we have fine dining and we don't know how to cook anything else. And I have proven that with also my uh, all, all the different restaurants I have. And uh, fine dining around the mm. world is not <clears throat> going away. I mean, London, Singapore, and uh, Paris, right. and everywhere. So I don't right. think we want America to lose this fine dining for sure. Danielle, one final question. I want you to speak to all of our listeners and viewers right now wondering what's going on in the kitchen. How do you maintain a new level of cleanliness in the kitchen? Well, uh, we have very strict guidelines just with the little crew we have right now for doing our takeout. We take uh, everybody go to an exam on a regular basis to be checked. Everyone, uh, when they arrive, we uh, we we have uh, uh, tables with, uh, of course, gloves and masks, and and we want them to change everything from where they come from outside. We we make sure that they are spray also to spray themselves. They go to change, and uh, and then we 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 respect mm-hmm. the fact that we have to wear a mask and be protected and be safe. Right. Uh, we tried the social distancing, of course, in the kitchen is very important. Uh, right now, we are producing about 6,000 meals every day, right. uh, every day, every week, every week to City Meal on Wheel downtown. And, and, you know, it's a lot of work, and we try to be very careful with that. We well, really, uh, it's, uh, so besides the charitable work, the home, right. uh, the takeout cooking, uh, with Daniel Bully Kitchen is important, but we also well, are gearing up next week uh, to open, even at the end of this week, this weekend, we're opening on the west side. So we hope and we're going to learn, but we're going to make our staff feel, of course, okay. affordable to its best. Right. And Danielle, as I always say, if I own, say, BMP Paribas, I have to say that I own shares in it. I have to say, folks, at times in the recent years, I've had the Oysters Rockefeller at one of Daniel Ballou's wonderful establishments one too many times. Daniel Ballou, thank you so much for joining us today. This will be fascinating to see the restaurants open uh, across this nation. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.